Hello, and welcome to Pharmarama. Thank you to everyone who signed up to our Patreon. We appreciate every one of you. Your support helps us keep bringing you the stories of regenerative farming around the world each month. If you'd like to join our growing Patreon family, please visit patreon.com forward slash Pharmarama, where you can choose your level of support. This month, we're at the Oxford Real Farming Conference, and, as ever, it was a great way to start the year. We were so pleased to again be the official media partners. After two years of virtual conference, this year's in-person OFC felt especially celebratory. It was a week of connecting the dots between the different parts of the agroecology movement, and opportunity to welcome more people in. couldn't have come close to experiencing everything, but we were blown away by what we did see and hear, and we're excited to bring you some of the conversations we had over the coming months. In this episode, we'll hear about some research into a new model for land ownership, and we're featuring an exploration of the problems and possible solutions that relate to overproduction of soya with our friends at Wicked Leaks. But first, we meet Dr. Kelly Jowett who brought a colleague along with her to ORFC. Megan is my um, psychon beetle. She comes with me to all the events and the people at the Oxford Farming Conference, Real Farming Conference today have seen Megan and she's helped me do my talk and explain all about carabid beetles. She's actually a Teflus megalii from Nigeria, hence the name Megan, and she's been with me for five years and she's still hearty and healthy (laughs) on a diet of snails. (laughs) After introductions, Kelly spoke to Katie Revel about her interest in insects and specifically beetles, including the role of beetles on farms, ways to encourage beneficial beetles and easy beetle monitoring techniques. I'm an applied entomologist and that really means that I'm trying to figure out what's going on in crop areas, livestock areas, to do with the beetle and other insect life that is beneficial to farming systems. My particular specialism is in beetles, particularly carabid beetles and dung beetles. And I'm picking apart the kind of things that farmers can do to accentuate these beneficial impacts that synergize with other kind of ecosystem services, as we call them, to get the most benefit uh, on the on the least land, really. So kind of stacking these services, trying to figure out how we get the most bang for our buck, really. <laughs> I've always loved insects from being a child. I just didn't know you could actually have a career in it. So I went back to university to actually be interested in forestry. So I was quite interested in trees. And then I figured out that there was really a kind of gap of people working in entomology. And the insects are really the things that are driving these systems, particularly in the agricultural sphere, where they can be beneficial, but they're often, we we see the negative news about pests in crops. And so it was kind of got on a crusade to look at these beneficials, see how they're helping us and kind of try and conserve it for both both for nature and for agriculture and therefore the whole of humankind really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Carabid beetles, they are predators. They're kind of like hyenas of the beetle world. They will eat pretty much anything they come across. 
particularly some of the species such as the black clock species. And they will just kind of, if you pick them up in your hand, they'll try and have a go at your fingers. The mandibles can't pierce flesh, don't worry, but uh, they do have a go. They're really voracious little beasties. And they will eat all kind of major crop pests. So we're talking about aphids, slug snails, caterpillars, more like when we're talking about weevils and such, more at the egg and larval stages. But not just reacting to pest outbreaks and eating them when they're in the problem in crops, but having a very suppressive effect of controlling the populations before they become a problem. So that's what we're looking for. A lot of people don't realise that carabid beetles actually eat weed seeds as well. Because weed seeds, if you think about a seed, is quite a nutritious resource. So if they come across it, they're just like, hmm, nom. So um, it's been figured out that they can eat up to 4,000 weed seeds per metre squared per day. Someone did like a lab feeding trial and multiplied it up and did a load of maths and worked that out. But that's quite impressive, even as a low scale figure for the kind of weed control that they can carry out in crop areas. When we're thinking about carabid beetles in the farm landscapes, we're thinking about the areas they need to feed, breed and shelter. So feeding crop pests. But we're thinking about that in a kind of time scale they need to feed all the time, not just when pests are a problem, but all year round. So we're thinking about alternative prey. So that is other habitats that have other kind of weed seeds and pests in, um, and other invertebrates that aren't particularly pests for them to persist over time in farm landscapes. So that will be like permanent habitats, hedgerows, field margins, that kind of thing. But also... The kind of a diversity of crops means that there's going to be something there all the time. They can move around the farm landscape. They are quite mobile organisms and they will move to the resources over time. So thinking about a kind of linking up habitats, a range of habitats. We're talking about breeding. Carabid beetles have an egg and a larval stage and that happens in the soil. They breed in the soil, mostly some, some the ones that you find in farm landscapes do. Hard to generalise. Um, so when we're thinking about them in the soil, we're thinking about reducing machinery operations. And particularly tillage can have a large impact on the next kind of generation of carabids in the soil growing up. So reduced tillage is one thing that is quite important. But if you can't do that, then reducing it to, you know, a minimum or kind of having... A, a rotation means that some fields will, will support them and then they can move around as adults. Other things is getting the middle of the field environments to support the kind of habitats. So thinking of the field as a habitat for the beetles and the resources that are occurring in the field centres are quite important to making sure the beetles are in the field centres where you want them over time and persist in them. So one of the things that I've found has been quite useful, particularly to carabid larva, is under-sowing with grass clover mix, because that is altering that environment to have more resources right in the field centres. So traditionally, it's said that field margins and hedgerows are quite important to carabids. But that field centre, I think, is the thing that we need to be focusing on moving onwards with more regenerative practices. Monitoring beetles can be quite useful, not just to find out what kind of predators you've got in your farm, they're, they're really beautiful to look at as well, but to see if you incorporate a new practice 
to see if it's having an impact on these kind of a positive impact on these beneficial invertebrates and how they change over time. Carabids are often used as environmental indicators of habitat change in many different kind of environmental studies. So we have a lot of data on them in kind of environmental change. So they are a really good indicator. They're sensitive to environmental change. So they do change quite quickly and you will see a difference in the communities that you find in. So it's, it's really interesting, but also informative on what services they're providing on your farm. And it's really easy to track carabids. It can be as easy as burying a yogurt pot in the soil, the soil level with the surface of the pot, some fluid inside the pot. Unfortunately, you do have to kill the beetles because they will eat each other inside the trap. Just end up with one big fat beetle. Don't want that. Well, you could do, but it wouldn't be very informative. <laughs> and then you just put a lid over the top to stop it filling up with rain and then you, you spill all the beetles. And then you just leave it for overnight, but ideally for seven days and then just see what you've got. I'm doing a farmer monitoring scheme. I've just completed a pilot and all the farmers were really uh, gave me some great feedback about that. And um, so next year I'll be rolling this out as part of our Ag Zero Plus project to find out what's happening in farm landscapes and the synergies with environmental services. We're having farmers go out and see what beetles they've got on the farm, send us the information back so we can have a lot of data and pick apart what regenerative practices, what innovative practices are really in having the best kind of impacts for a range of invertebrates and range of environmental outcomes. So to support this, we're hoping to have a phone app, but we already have the Carabid ID guide, which I've been giving out to farmers today, and they can email me at Rothamsted to get a copy of that guide if they would like and to be involved in the scheme. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach Kelly at kellyjowett at rothamsted.ac.uk. That's Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, Jowett, J-O-W-E-T-T. Ollie Jung was at OOFC with Open Systems Lab, a research and development nonprofit mostly working with design and software. The project they work on at OSL is called Fairhold. It addresses the land, and specifically, ownership of that land. So Fairhold is a proposed new class of ownership that lifts riffs on a leasehold. And it would enable any landowner to make their land available as a place to live or work, but not as a speculative financial asset. More specifically, it's designed to improve affordability in areas where it is low, expensive areas. And we're focusing first and foremost on housing. Yeah, and in our session earlier today, I was trying to establish some more relevance and context for the ORFC audience. So I think important to acknowledge is first... um, You know, obviously ownership is like our legal relationship with land and that kind of forms the foundations for how we relate to it, what rights we have over it, what we can do with it, what our obligations are to it, and crucially, how stable our relationship with the land is. Secondly, of course, growers need a place to live as well. Um, And um, yeah, um, the housing crisis, yeah, affects us all. And furthermore, we've also been made aware of some asset-rich cash-poor farmers that might be interested in participating in something like Fairhold as a landowner rather than the fairholder. 
Thirdly, yeah, Fairhold is an open source project, which could, of course, be yeah, iterated upon by uh, anyone to better serve the agricultural context and needs. Though, of course, land use, food production, et cetera, are so central moving forward. I think that's something that we'd like to consider more explicitly eventually as part of our scope later down the line. So Fairhold itself would be a, will be a modular and open source suite of lease agreements designed to facilitate stewardship and preclude speculation. So we would use restrictive covenants to realize these things. For instance, that might specify that you can't sell a fair hold for more than you bought it for, subject to inflation. And then on the stewardship side of things, you know, it might be new, any new development must be net zero embodied carbon or better, or there might be certain biodiversity obligations, et cetera. So obviously it does, it depends on having a kind of benevolent, socially minded landowner, whether that is a public one, like a local authority, whether that is maybe an institutional one, like the church or a kind of community, you know, a community land trust type project, or even a private landowner. In the case of a private landowner, we've been hearing of a couple cases where perhaps a farmer is kind of asset rich and cash poor, has a lot of land, but then maybe lives in a kind of hot area where there are, where there's really a lot of acute housing need um, and a lot of social pressure to to kind of do something meaningful to alleviate it or do something for the community. And of course, you know, the longer a person has been in the place, kind of the stronger their ties probably are to it and to its people. Yeah, I guess in the case of a private landowner like this one, you know, Fairhold would offer an opportunity to create affordable housing and do something positive for the community while also creating some sort of financial return, though, of course, it would not be as high as market rate. So those would be the incentives for the landowner. There were a lot of great questions from the audience, which was, yeah, you know, always, um, always exciting to actually be able to interact with people. And so Fairhold was one of a few models that was spoken about at this panel. So there was from the Ecological Land Cooperative and Land Workers Alliance, and then Kai Heron from Birkbeck and Commonwealth was uh, speaking about public commons partnerships as another alternative ownership model. So yeah, there seems to be a lot of um, positive response and people kind of interested in um, what these things could offer in many different respects, whether to do with care, whether to do with organizing, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Frances Northrop from the New Economics Foundation, who is um, chairing the session, was talking about how she ended up um, interested in all of this stuff. And it was that realization, you know, um, in, through being interested in community wealth building work or, and whatnot, just realizing, well, actually, you can't do any of that without the land. And so, yeah, the kind of land question is foundational. So Fairhold is the kind of newest incarnation of an idea that Alistair Parvin, um, the Open Systems Lab uh, director and uh, one of the co-founders of Civic Square, Andy Reeve, put out in a paper called Affordable Land, uh, I think in 2019, maybe. And yeah, so that was the kind of genesis of the Fairhold idea. And um, since I've started at OSL uh, over a year ago now, we've been kind of working to develop the model through a lot of interviews and whatnot and really give it shape beyond just a hold on, what if this was a thing um, kind of idea. And the kind of the crux of what Fairhold is, I think, can kind of be summed up in two different precedents. The first of which is Creative Commons, in that they tried to change legislation and weren't able to, but they kind of didn't need to in the end. 
Um, they started designing and issuing their own licenses, which just took off on their own accord. And they didn't have to wait for top-down change. They didn't have to ask permission and so on. And these licenses offered a kind of intermediate set of intellectual property rights that were somewhere in between all rights reserved in public domain. So I think kind of strategically and also just to give an example of kind of the role that Fairhold could play, I think that's a really useful one to think about. But then, of course, there are the plethora of community land trusts and community-led development projects that are out there, which also form another kind of key pillar of Fairhold. And um, yeah, so I think of Fairhold very much as a tool designed to help streamline and facilitate the creation of these projects, because every kind of covenant that we're uh, working with, every single component of it is it's got a proven precedent somewhere, whether in the UK or beyond. Like these are all mechanisms that have been uh, like innovated and tried and tested by all of these like pioneering groups. Um, so kind of our job is to think like, well, what's been challenging for them in realizing these things and how can we alleviate them? So we are currently working on another draft of our white paper, which will hopefully um, we can share um, later on this year. It's tricky <laughs> to get a kind of, you know, a balance between ambition and pragmatism. Our next steps are to finish up this white paper and take it, uh, which has a much more kind of robust proposal of a model um, than the previous paper did, and take that to potential partners so that we can uh, start a conversation up that is rooted in concrete mechanisms and examples and begin a co-design process with them. Because this is, like I said, it uses a lot of precedents that other people people have developed and built, but it's not like our project alone or anything. So it's really important to us that it's a, you know, a collaborative process with lots of different actors and try to bring them all to the table. So the next steps are to, yeah, embark on that co-design session and then see where that takes us. To stay up to date on all of those developments, we've got a newsletter that can be signed up to via our website. Um, if you go under the project section, under the Fairhold section. But yeah, I'd like to say that if there's anybody um, in the Farmerama audience who is lucky enough, as you say, to own land and is interested in doing something different with it, um, to please get in touch. Um, we'd love to hear from you and hear about your experiences and knowledge and you know what, what's been difficult in trying to make this land available in a different way. And why are you, why are you trying to do this? And uh, yeah, we'd love to figure out how best we can help. So if you do want to write me, I'm O-L-L-I-E, Ollie, at opensystemslab.io. Yeah, please feel free to get in touch. We've collaborated with Wicked Leaks, a magazine for sustainable food and ethical business published by Riverford, to produce a series of short features about animal feed. The first one is featuring Jerry Alford from the Innovative Farmers Research Network, talking to Wicked Leaks editor Nina Pullman, who asked him what he sees as the main issues with global soya production. The biggest issue we have with global soil production is the way that it's, we're taking out rainforest in order to grow more. We've no really thought about the consequences. Um, the climate change damage by losing the rainforest is massive. And we've really got to try and move away from that degree of damage. And how are we as consumers most likely to consume this soy? It's two real major ways. One is it's a major protein source for production of pig and poultry mm. um, and eggs indirectly. There's also the oil, which is a byproduct or a co-product, is also used in ultra-processed food particularly. It's a major significant part of that sort of non-pure food production. Mm. And I suppose thinking about the animal side of it, it's mainly through animal feed, is that right? 
most of it will be going into animal food, particularly pig and poultry. And why has that become such a huge problem? Why are we so reliant on soy in animal feed? We go back quite historic because it used to be fish meal um, and we were overfishing, so we stopped overfishing. Um, there was also a little bit of issues with BSE and, and, and the contaminated meat and bone meal. And then soya became the easy option. It became the easiest crop that we can grow. It's sort of considered by the trade to be a bit of a super protein food because it contains all the amino acids. And so they've developed the whole farming system around soy as opposed to looking at the alternatives. Because we've always grown peas and beans in this country. We've got lupins. We're standing in a field of grass here. We've got grass. You know, even free range birds get an awful lot of benefit from the protein that's contained in grasses and clovers. So we've got alternatives. We've just become embedded to this sort of this route. Yeah, and, and you were running a trial, weren't you, recently looking at these alternatives? And what, what kind of alternatives particularly were you looking at and, and what, what did the trial find? One of the problems we have with the peas and beans within diets is that they contain anti-nutritional factors. And we know from human consumption, we have to soak a bean or a pulse before we eat it. Those anti-nutritional factors disrupt the gut of pigs and poultry. And so it's inefficient, but we found that by heating up the beans, and actually we did it in the trial, we actually did it in an agar, mm. um, up to 180 degrees for three minutes, disrupt, breaks down those anti-nutritional factors, which means the protein becomes much better available, more useful. That's a change from the processing we've ever done before, but it means that we could include more peas and beans in the, in the ration. The other thing that's a factor within the pulses and peas and beans is that actually germination of that plant actually breaks up those anti-nutritional factors. And so by having them sprouting and feeding them the sprouted grains, we've actually again found reduction in those anti-nutritional factors. So therefore it becomes more possible Russian ingredient. And so we can get rid of those problems which require processing on farm. The third trial that we ran as part of that was actually to look at what we're growing in the fields as well. When we grow a field of wheat or barley, what we often have included in that is, is seeds from weed plants. For example, one of the favorite ones is fat hen. Fat hen is, comes from the same family as quinoa or quinoa. Um, it's very high protein. So by feeding that cleaning product to the chickens, we actually found we had a very high protein food available as opposed to our processing on farm to produce cleaner food to sell to other farms. So am I right in thinking the main issue is actually the processing? So soy is kind of processed at scale and it arrives on farms and ready to use. Is that, is that kind of the main blocker, would you say? Yeah, soya, when it arrives on farm or in the factory to be turned into food, is, is already a processed product. It's been heat treated, it's had the oil extracted, it's had all of these processes and it comes right. as a meal, which is just protein and a byproduct. So unlike having a pea or a bean where you've actually got to mill it yourself in the mill, you've got a little bit of processing needed. But we can move away from it. We can reduce the amount of soil we need because we can use these as a sort of a filler, if you like, a low level, poorer quality protein within the ration and use the soil just to peak it up. Most farms, if they're integrated in themselves, if they've got, you know, the, we've got an awful lot of technology now. You know, farms used to have mills on farms, little small mini mills to produce enough for their own use. The trickier on a bigger scale industrial chicken unit, for example, but on certainly on the smaller scale ones, it's perfectly possible to process yourself as an on-running going system. Yeah. So do you think that we're going to be looking at sort of a, a range of different um, alternatives rather than there being like you mentioned fish meal, then everybody moved to soy. So we're not really looking for the next soy. Is that? I don't think we ought to be. I think every animal species requires a diverse diet. Um, we can add in those building blocks of the protein, different amino acids from different sources, rather than being dependent on one that appears to tick all our boxes from a one point of view. 
but doesn't tick many boxes from a different point of view. We've got some farmers who've gone totally soil free. Um, there's one or two farmers we're aware of that, that have got totally, they're producing eggs in pretty large scale. We know that in the dairy sector, there are farms that have gone soya free, um, partly pressurized by supermarkets to move in that direction. But yes, it's possible because those alternative feeds are there. We, we can produce byproducts from proteins relatively easy in the country. And I mean, people, you know, wanting to do the right thing when they're choosing what food to buy and eat, you know, they might want to buy food that is yeah. um, fed uh, soy-free diet. Yeah, it's difficult to find stuff that hasn't got soy in it because it's not particularly labelled. There are attempts to do it through the bigger chains, but labelling is, is always an issue. The best route would obviously be to go and talk to your producer. So if you can find a local producer who is, is doing that and is bigging it up that they're doing it, um, perhaps that's what we need to be doing is supporting people to, to actually acknowledge, I'm soya-free, great, let's go and support them because then more people will get on board. Niche markets are always the one that everyone's trying to get into. But yes, in this rural environment, it's easy. You know, we get to know a farmer, go to a farm, but the farmers' markets do it. Supermarkets are starting to be aware of the responsibility and looking to do it. And there are independent supermarkets who will, who will um, offer those sort of options available. And I think the more we ask for it, you know, the supply chain will move if we are all asking for it. Thinking about farmers and, you know, why they perhaps aren't able to shift, even if they wanted to. What are your thoughts on, you know, why, how are they locked into this system? You know, who owns that kind of feed supply chain? Is that part of why things aren't moving perhaps as fast as um, most other people would like? There's a little bit of a problem within the supply chain here because there is a massive supply chain working with soya. They, they, they control or have an influence in the whole, everything from supply of seed to a farm in the rainforest regions to the boat that brings it to the, the crushing plants in Europe, to the crushing plant that the feed supply company that turns it into chicken food, they're all interlinked or, or owned by each other. You know, the local farmer is then being told, well, we don't want you to grow peas and beans because I can replace it with soya dead easy. I don't want to buy your product. And the farmer is saying, well, I want an alternative crop that isn't monocultural wheat. I want to grow peas or beans. And so we have a bit of a sort of a clash, if you like, between the farmer who wants to do the right thing. And we know that peas and beans in a farming rotation bring diversity, but there's just not a big enough demand out of the supply chain at the moment for the farmer to be paid enough for what he's producing. Meanwhile, you know, obviously, you know, in a so farmers doing amazing work kind of helping farmers understand how it works for them and yep. they've got to trust that that actually works as a system before they can roll it out. That's what's happening that's what industry farmers trials do is we highlight directions that can work and working with farmers the peer-to-peer -peer work one farmer does it someone else realizes that it works for them it could work for us we can we can turn that into a into a direction of travel. We've had quite a few questions of people looking into the whole area of alternative proteins and the way that even in a dairy farm, if can we grow, as an example, we grow maize, can we grow runner beans in amongst the maize to increase the protein so I can buy less protein? There's, there's so many directions that farmers can be thinking about going. Um, and they are, but they just need the support and the guidance from someone who is sort of independent and trying it, because otherwise, who are we asking? We're asking the supply chain who wants to, to buy their other products. If you want to learn more about Animal Feed, you can head to the Wicked Leaks website to read an article and also watch a short documentary they've produced. And we'll be featuring some more in the next episode. For more stories on sustainable food and ethical business, you can sign up online to receive the weekly edition of the Wicked Leaks magazine.
This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose, Katie Revel, Olivia Oldham, and Dora Taylor. Additional recordings by Nina Pullman, editor at Wicked Leaks. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Fran Bailey. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We'll leave you with the sound of the Taiko drummers who closed the opening ceremony at ORFC.